have the privilege of sitting here today with Debbie Bossy, a very prominent post-production supervisor. Um, her credits include Mission Impossible 3, uh, two of Kevin Costner's films, The Postman, and what was the name of the other one, Justin? For Love of the Game. That was Sam Raimi, actually, directed that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cameron Crowe I've worked with a couple of times, and Marty Brest. Vanilla and, Sky, Elizabeth Town. Uh-huh. Robert Town I've worked with twice wow. on Ask the Dust, more recently with Selma Hayek and Colin Farrell. And years ago on a little movie about Steve Prefontaine, The Runner, oh, which was that. Billy Crudup starring yeah, in. The little movie nobody saw, but that I is saw. quite fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Rent it if good. you haven't seen it. It's yeah, a pure I, Robert Town. Well, there were Town. two Prefontaine there movies were. that came out. Got lost. Yep. Yeah, that one got lost. And, and that one, as far as I was concerned, was uh, the better one. Ours? But, yeah. Without Limits? Yeah. 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 I think so. Donald Sutherland. And Donald Sutherland played the guy who um, created the Nike shoes. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was a great film. So um, check that out. Um, I'm not ordering anybody to check that out, but please do. <laughs> I, <am. laughs> so, I don't even get a cut, and I'm ordering you to check it out. It's, it's a really good movie that people should see. Yeah. Still. De- Debbie and Debbie, uh, we met Debbie through Erica Lopez, the author. Um, the brilliant writer, uh, artist, who everybody's going to know about very soon. And she's also the, a fan of Fat Free Film. And, our uh, first, our first big fan. President <laughs> of the fan club, right? President of the fan club, and so we're very grateful to her. And um, the first thing I want to do is I want to define uh, what a post-production supervisor is, because I think a lot of people might not know what that is. That's the first question I always get when I try to explain to friends or relatives or strangers on the street what I do. I always say this: it's it's sort of a simple way to describe it. It's kind of like producing the post-production end of a film. I generally start the movie two or three weeks before they finish shooting the film to get up to speed. The editors by then are obviously on the film and the cutting room has been set up and so forth. And I start at that point and I take it all the way through the movies in the theaters, basically. And it's kind of like you are wrangling the budget and the schedule and the hiring of certain crew personnel and just making sure the day-to-day operations, much like a line producer or UPM does on the set, you are making sure kind of on a daily basis that things are happening in such a way that you're getting to the next target date and the next date and the next date. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a whole um, array of different responsibilities and tasks. It's not just focused on one aspect. It's not just sound or just music or just, you know, dubbing or whatever. It's kind of stepping back and looking at the whole big picture is what basically the post-supervisor does. Are you working hand-in-hand with the director on this? Absolutely. Yeah, it's actually, I'm working with the directors and the producers. I'm often hired by either sort of, you know, uh, directors I've already worked with before who liked working with me or producers that I've worked with before. Um, Often, not so often, but occasionally the studio will have worked with me where I've not worked with the director or producer before, and they'll call and they're like, we have a film we'd like you to do, and I meet with a producer and then director, usually before I start a film for somebody that I haven't worked with before. Um, But the thing that I like about it is, unlike production, where you're dealing with hundreds of people at a time on any given day, um, post-production is down to no more than a crew of probably 20 to 30 for the period of time anywhere from, you know, four months to eight months to a year sometimes. So you're really in the trenches, and you're with the director almost every day, which is great you know, you get complete exposure to the whole process of finishing the film. I deal with, um, you know, sometimes the producers are moving on to their next project already, um, and you sort of just peripherally check in with them when things are, you know, when you have a 
bigger issue you need to deal with or something. But primarily your main uh, contact is the editors on a day-to-day -day basis and the director, which is always great, you know. So let's say that I'm an in, uh, a young independent filmmaker. I'm making my first feature film, and I, re I know um, how to get the movie done um, in terms of shooting it, but then I have absolutely no idea what's entailed. And this, I think, is a, is a problem that occurs a lot because you kind of assume, well, I made it, now you know, it should be done, but in fact, it's only it's just only, beginning. It's completely, that's, that's, thank you for recognizing that. <laughs> Myself and all the other post-supervisors out there appreciate that statement. Um, it's true, and it's, it's um, I kind of fell into it years ago, but when a, when a young filmmaker starting out, they probably can get help on this particular aspect of it from hiring an editor that's worked on other things because the editor it's always the the sort of the hub of the whole post-production process is in the film cutting room is in the picture department there's the sound department there's the music department as well that's it, working concurrently with the film department obviously but the editor has to know the day you know that sort of the ins and outs of everything that has to happen because they ultimately are overseeing on some level the sound guys they're requesting things from them all the time they're requesting things from the music guys so if a young director hires an editor that he that's sort of been around the block, even if it's been as an, a decent assistant editor that knows how the whole cutting room operation works, that person could begin to sort of unveil some of the mystery of what we do. Um, I find that more and more lately, the producers are sort of getting more savvy with what post-production is. I worked with producers years ago, and they're completely clueless and for me that was great because I had to step it up and go okay well this is what we're going to do and it gave me a little bit more I don't want to say power or control but just let me run the show a little bit more and um, I think with the advent of visual effects coming around for films they kind of had to open their eyes because you have to prepare for that part of the film in pre-production just like the shooting and the wardrobe and the makeup and everything else so as the visual effects started coming more prominent in feature films I think producers started to get and think about and care about post-production a bit more um, but because there is a minimal amount of people that you have to deal with in post versus production in terms of the number of departments I think a young director, director could easily sort of go talk to his editor go talk to a sound guy or get a recommendation for a sound guy from you know his editor and then just start having dialogues and the good guys out there especially if they know it's a first-time director are going to help them along the way they don't have to be completely cognizant of every minutiae detail because most directors still aren't they just kind of let you do your job or they can hire a, a you know post-production coordinator somebody that's wanting to get their feet a little bit wet you know in the post-supervisor role so the coordinator is to the supervisor what the UPM is to the well it, no it's more like what and I've, I've actually I think there's only one time that I worked with um, kind of an assistant most of the time I, I just run the show by myself and we have PAs that work in the editorial but there's a some shows hire post-production coordinators and they would be like almost the production coordinator under the UPM they would post coordinator would work more closely under the producer a lot of times a producer when they don't have the money to hire a post supervisor they'll make their assistants in charge of posts and that sometimes is a nightmare because they don't know they just sort of stumble through it but um there is a uh, on the films that i do like i said there's not often that i have a coordinator working with me but there's you said upm and that's unit production manager right? right and what what is that role during production and during pre-production, their their task is monumental as far as I'm concerned. They're the day-to-day -day grind of of figuring out. They work with the assistant directors at the very beginning. They they oversee and, and 
supervised the budget of the film along with the accounting department. They work very closely with the director and the location scouts and the assistant directors when everything is being scheduled out. It's the UPM that really says, no, we need to actually move the company to this location on this day because it'll cost us too much to go here. So they're kind of overseeing the day-to-day operations of it, whereas the people that are usually given the title of producers, at least in my experience, are stepping back even further and doing, dealing with a little bit more of the bigger picture. So would you say that UPM and line producer are synonymous? Yeah, they do. And you'll often find if you watch credits that you either see an executive producer credit up front of the name of a person, and then if you watch the beginning of the end credits where they list the line producer or the UPM, often the executive producer, often the line producer of the UPM is given the executive producer credit because they've carried such a torch during the process. But maybe they're not the person that found the property, or maybe not. They're the, you know, they may not be the creative control that deals with the story subtleties and subtext and so forth. But they are really ramrodding the show through on a day to day. Is that a basis. unionized position? The UPM is, yeah. That's part of the. Uh, that's the, part of the, the directors' that's guild. That's part of the directors' guild, right? What about your job? We don't have a union. We don't have union representation yet. We tried to get into the. Um, the editors' guild through IATSE, and the editors' guild was completely favorable about putting us in their union, and the the uh, IATSE shot it down right now. So we're not we're. I, I, it, it's sad to me, but us along with like the PAs on a movie are pretty much the only people that aren't unionized. Does that cause you difficulty when you're trying to negotiate your pay for what you're doing? Um, not so much because mm-hmm. I've established over the years a pretty decent rate for myself, but mm-hmm. it it would certainly be helpful if you had that baseline like all of the assistant editors do the sound editors the music editors they all have a baseline that the studio or the producer has to pay and then whatever they get on top of that is based on their experience level or their you know it's just it's extra for their experience that they bring to the table post supervisors they can throw any number at you and you you know you got to negotiate your way up some post supervisors i know actually work started working with agents several years back and I didn't go down that road myself because I feel fortunate, knock wood, that you know I pretty I'm pretty lucky in finding the next gig because I do freelance. So I've worked at all the pretty much all the major studios in town. So now, um, if you would, will you just briefly say, for instance, um, the chain of events that occurs? Sure. We, as I said, I start two to three weeks before the film finishes, and I sort of start then while the pr- the production is still going on just to kind of get a groove and then generally on a feature film the the ones that I typically work on the studio movies there's a 20 like a 24 to maybe 30 week post production schedule and almost without a doubt the first 10 weeks of that is dedicated to the what they call the director's cut which is a standardized amount of time that's in the union contract with the director's guild that says you the studio or you the producer must give the director 10 weeks to do his cut before you can basically enter the sanction and you know start messing around with the cut of the size of the film or the budget or no it's it, my experience but it is if it's a DGA movie mm-hmm. then you often have you have to just assume when you're doing your schedule and your budget that the first 10 weeks are dedicated to the director's cut when you've run into a situation as some of the films have been lately to meet a to meet a uh, a strong release date and they truncate they take the 22 weeks or 24 weeks and they truncate it down to say 15 or something the director wants the movie to come out on whatever that special release date is so he will actually waive the 10-week cut maybe for a six-week cut or an eight-week cut but you should always go in on a big film assuming that it's going to be a 10-week director's cut so during that time the 
director finishes shooting, they may sometimes what I've found is, you know, go away and sort of decompress from the production, you know, headaches and hassles and craziness for a week while the editor sort of catches up to camera, if you will. They'll take all along the editor's been all through production, cutting the scenes as they shoot them. They're maybe a day or two behind camera. And when the film finishes shooting, they've still got that last couple of days of dailies that they have to what they call assemble into the first cut, the editor's assembly. It's usually referred to. And sometimes that runs quite long because they're not embellishing so much on particular takes and stuff like that and nuances of performance as they are just stringing together the movie as it was written for the director to come in and view and say, okay, this is what you've got. And I've worked on films where director's cuts are four hours long and the movie ends up being two or they're two and a half or three hours long and you know it's supposed to be a 90-minute comedy, you know, and it's just like, okay, now we got to start cutting. So that's what the beginning process is about. The, the director comes in and they are there every day working with the editor or editors, depending on if it's one or two um, picture editors on a film, and they just start cutting away. And about five weeks into that process is usually when you start bringing on your sound effects team. You've already hired, you, you probably should, at the beginning of production, even before you start shooting, lock in your sound supervisor, because a lot of these guys, especially the, the big guys in town, they get you know committed to projects well in advance, as do sound mixers which this you get is, to at the very this end. This is post-sound supervisors yeah. and mixers. Yeah, not, not the on. sound mixer, not, not the guy, the production sound mixer, not the guy that's on the set recording the sound, but the guy that's actually going to do all the sound effects, all the Foley, all the ADR, which is the dialogue replacement. Foley is... Foley is where you've probably, you probably may or may not have seen some of the commercials they used to run in Los Angeles where they show um, a guy... On a, on a sound stage and he's watching the movie he's watching clips from the movie in front of him and he's got it's like a little playground actually the Foley guys have all of these fun little toys spread out and they've got all these different floor services and they mainly started I think that Jack Foley was the original guy that started doing this and so the term was coined Foley after his name but they are the ones that put in all of the sound effects that aren't cut by the sound effects editors like somebody walking down the street are glasses clanging you know they'll actually see that on screen and because the sound production sound mixer wasn't paying attention to what the glasses are sounding like it's not about the glasses it's about the dialogue between the two actors they later go back in and watch they actually watch the scene on the sound stage and it's a it's a completely soundproof room and they will pick up two wine glasses and watch and go ding right at the right moment or if it's a gunfight they have all the different guns and weapons if it's a period piece like you know, Braveheart or one of those guys. They try to get as much to original, you know, props as they can. They oftentimes call the prop people during the movie and say, don't store those too deeply because I'm going to need to borrow those when we do Foley. Even just your hand handling a gun. There are particular sounds about that, that if you go to raise that sound effect on a dubbing stage and you're using the track that was recorded on the stage during the, the shooting of that scene, you're also raising the dialogue and any ambient noise around it. So you've got to solo out those little, those little things. And it's, it's ever so subtle when you finally watch the movie, but it gives you control. What post-production really is all about is control of every little element. You know, you redo dialogue, you redo sound, you, you add stuff, you take stuff out, you know. You can probably control focus, too, of what people are focusing on through oh, sound. Completely. And it, it's surprising how many things you can control in post, yeah. uh, whether it be color or whether it be sound effects or things like that that change 
the way you, you yeah. view the movie. I yeah, mean. and the old adage, we'll fix it in post, just let it go, move on to the next <laughs> setup, you know? And we do, we fix it in post, essentially. So about five weeks in, to get back to that, is when you start hiring these extra people. You bring on your sound supervisor and maybe one or two of his design people that start looking at the early cut of the movie and going, okay, there's a huge long car crash here, a car chase, and then a car crash. We need to start pulling sound effects so that we can build, because sometimes the car crash could be a hundred sound effects strung together and they're layered and layered and layered and layered and you could strip them all away and start to hear where they started from and sometimes they're not even sound effects that are related to an actual car crash you know I worked on speaking of the postman um, with Kevin Costner and I was on the Foley stage and there was a scene where um, somebody gets chewed up by like off camera but in a bush gets chewed up by a lion I think it was the postman and the way they made the sound of the guy getting gnarled is the guy had a... You, you never give away Foley secrets. It's like a ma- magician's trick, but I'm going to give you this <laughs> okay. one. He had a, sto- a, a bunch of celery stalks, you know, like a whole like six or seven of them. And he had a wet chamois like you dry your car with. He wrapped the wet chamois around the celery. And when they got to that part of the scene where you, where you don't see it, but you see that it's a bush and there's something going on, he started twisting the celery with the wet chamois around it and it's a guy getting gnarled by a lion when you watch it it's like so they use these cool tricks of the trade you know to make to make it real so it's it's layer upon layer and the the other i just want to interject because i'm also right now um doing post on a short that i finished last year in spain and we're kind of at the point where we should be doing foley but because i'm waiting for favors as you know in the independent world you're often waiting and we haven't been able to get a fully stage i was kind of saying to our sound um what's dave broberg's title called sound editor i was saying to our senator i forget fully i mean we really don't need fully and he said well the fact is when you go to another language let's say my my film is in spanish let's say it's going to be in chinese they will remove the whole dialogue track and with it will go all my other noises they won't be able to keep those so it'll be just totally blank with and it'll look sound really horrible so it's called the m and e track correct effects track yeah that's later down the line when you finish the real dub but you have to prepare the track that's the other reason that you do do fully i'm glad you brought that up but in addition to sort of embellishing on what we would see in say an american film and just giving that extra little detail that makes it real when you're watching the movie because maybe we've replaced your line of dialogue because there was a plane going over your head you take out your line of dialogue and now i don't have you picking up the glass of wine sound so i need to add that back in in addition to your dialogue that you've re-recorded later in post-production so you're right it is useful for the domestic release of a film as well as all the international when they replace the language track. Um, So the sound guys come on at about five weeks. You also bring on your music editor at that time. Some movies, as you guys know, are more music-driven than others. A lot of directors, like Cameron Crowe, for instance, love songs, and he knows when he's writing the script, I'm sure, what songs are going to go where. But you bring on a music editor that starts playing around with different songs. If a director doesn't have a strong musical sense, they'll suggest things to the director during this time. And what they're all leading up to, what we're all trying to get to, is that 10-week mark where you have your studio screening or your producer screening, and you show the people that basically paid for the movie, here's what we've got, now let's hear what you have to say about it. But you do, it's kind of a sacred time, and they give the director the time to just sit with what he's shot over the last three months and really work on it and get the best, you know, takes from an actor or whatever. And then at the 10-week mark, generally, you show the studio the film, and then you jump right into what they call the preview process. 
and the oh, studio. They, they previewed the director's cut. No, no, they don't. Well, you jump into the preview process, meaning that you will then take notes from your producer, and some directors like to have sort of a family and friend screening where they bring people in that they trust to watch the film and give you know constructive criticism. Producers will certainly have notes and so forth. Um, you go through that for another week or two, and then you get it ready to preview in the cases of films that actually do preview. You may have been approached on the streets in Los Angeles saying, you want to see a free movie. Well, that's what that's about. So, and that, that thing that we're looking at at those screenings is only about 15 weeks after the end of the movie? Yeah. Oh, see, yeah. I thought that was much closer to being totally it's, finished. It can be 15. depends on... Some, I've been on films that have three or four previews because there's a problem with the ending or they want to try something new or we did reshoots after we previewed it once because people didn't get what the relationship was about, so we had to shoot a love scene and add that in. So it depends on what kind of movie you're on, but the preview process I find that is incredibly helpful because you know some directors just completely hate the idea. They're like, we're not going to preview the movie. It's not going to happen. Other ones are like, yeah, I want that feedback. They're craving it because they're so in that cocoon with that editor and they've lived this world for the last year or whatever getting ready to shoot the movie. They need an outside opinion. They need the sort of demographic that's going to actually pay the $11 and go see the film. They need that feedback. And it's interesting to sit through the process and... and see what the cards say at the end, which is, you know, after the after the preview's done, they hand out these comment cards, and the audience fills out what they liked about the film, what they didn't like, what they didn't get, what characters they like, what characters they didn't like. Would they recommend it to friends, which is always a big question. Everybody huddles around for the answer to that, because that's how you, you know, get the legs to keep the movie in the theaters. So that, that happens after the director's cut. You screen for the studio and the producers. You get notes, you make more picture changes, and then you go typically to what they call a dubbing stage. And you take the sound effects guys' work that they've been doing for the last five weeks. You take the music editor's songs. You take any dialogue that you've re-recorded with actors. If there's a change in a voiceover, you need to do a line because it's been, you know, the, the tracks were bad for whatever reasons. And also group loop, which I used to do a lot yeah, of, too. Yeah, you, you get a session, and usually if you're lucky, you can afford to sort of knock out one day of group to embellish those scenes that are crowd scenes, so that you, instead of laying in the blanket wallet track that you've heard before a thousand times, you actually hire a group of actors from a loop group you know 12 to 15 people sometimes you give them the 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 lead of the loop group usually comes in and watches the movie and takes notes of how many females how many males if there's any you know ethnic folks they need to hire whatever for language issues and so forth and we'll do a day of loop group or group they call it and record all of the various background dialogue you know the scene the two people over in the back of the cafe talking or the, the street scene where there's passing all these different people those people need to be saying something to make the film feel alive even though during the day they shot it the extras were not they were just whispering so you wouldn't mm-hmm. step on that actor's dialogue so all of those pieces come together on the dub stage before you preview the movie typically and you're on the dub stage from anywhere depending on kind of the budget of the film from two days to seven days and you know it's either eight hours a day or it's either 15 or 17 hours a day depending on what you have on your plate and what you're trying to do is to put the movie in more of a presentable fashion so that the people seeing it oftentimes you fly the movie out of town to get kind of a a more green audience because LA you find is very savvy most of the people in this town are film industry or film students so they're very you know uh, they know about all of the nuances of what's going to make it not be right. They'll complain about the sound not being right or whatever. So anyways, you try to get the film to to sort of be like the same experience that they would get going to see the finished product, paying their money to see it. If there are visual effects missing, like green screens and stuff, 
so that the audience doesn't get taken out of the film during the preview, you at least try to do a temp visual effect. You try to do what they call a temp comp to at least take the guy off the green screen and put him you know, in the background with the plane flying by or whatever, even if it's not the finished product. So the movie going experience on the preview will, will be as close to it can be as the finished product so that you can get true feedback without the audience being taken out because, oh, there's a green screen, oh, there's no sound here, there's no walla. You do the preview, you get more notes from that. Certainly everybody in that room has an opinion and there's cards that you read and you either take it or leave it and you kind of start shaping the film and the final cut over the last stretch of the process after so one or two previews. read the cards? I mean, do you read them? Does the director read the them? Director, I always imagined kind of, that went to some marketing company or something. Vault and you have to have a special key <laughs> to get into it. It's, the marketing people get it on some um, level. Um, the studio gets a set usually, and they usually, you know, messenger over that night to the, to the director's house, the producer's house, the cards, and they make, you know, copies of them. But they're very sacred because it's, it's especially today when everyone has access to, you know, things via the internet, and there, you could start spin about a movie before it even hits the theaters, mm-hmm. and there's a piracy issue. So you keep those close to your chest, if you will, and it's kind of a sacred circle to get to read the cards but you know being that you're working in the cutting room you kind of start to get the vibe of how the preview went down you get the sense that yeah it went well and you're in the room too you're there for the you know the audience preview one of the things that I do is all the technical checks at the theater before we preview that night you know we're there at eight o'clock in the morning plattering the movie building it onto one of those big platters and we do a full technical run through so that plattering the movie means plattering the movie means you're taking all when you preview on film a lot of times they're previewing now on on, yeah, on, on HD tape, which is a lot easier and less of a headache when you're running the film that night. But you take the film, which is probably on you know six or eight reels, double reels, which is about you know two or two and a half hours, and you have to build them onto a big round platter. They take reel one, they attach it to reel two, they attach reel two to reel three, because they don't do in the theaters you go to and pay, pay tickets for, excuse me, there's not a projectionist up in the room flipping between the first projector and the second projector. The whole movie is built onto this giant, real, like, huge pizza pie, you know, and it's the whole thing. So they just I hit the start no switch, idea. and it just starts. So we have to, there's a lot of, like, technical prep before you can run the movie for the audience that night. It has to be spot-on, perfect, so that they're not, you know, the, the splices don't break or the sound doesn't run out of sync, because at that time it's still not connected to the film. You have sound on one roll and picture on another, and... It's just you have to completely get it right so that it's, you know, enjoyable to watch. So if, let me get this right, when they say P&A, prints and ads, right, uh-huh. and you're delivering 4,000 prints, you're delivering huge pizza prints like no, no, this no, bit? No, no, this is for the screening. Right? Yeah, this is, this is just for the preview screening. You build it at the theater. When, you, when they ship the prints out, when the movie's done and it's about to open in a week or two, they actually ship them from the lab in cans, Goldberg cans. Right, so they're on small reels like that. that. So isn't a projectionist doing that? No, or? no. When they get to the theater, they build it onto a platter. They do? Yeah. Especially with the multiplexes now, because let's say your big summer blockbuster movie opens on the biggest screen in you know the AMC theater. Well, two weeks later, when it's not the biggest thing on the screen anymore, they're going to move that film over to theater six, which is smaller. And all they do is they take like this big spatula thing and they lift it under the big platter and they carry it over to the theater, you know, theater wow. six platter, and they put the new blockbuster on the on the thing. So they always build it at the theaters. It's always shipped out in a small, you know, in like two Goldberg cans. It has like six reels. It goes out if it's a two-hour movie. It's usually six reels. 
So it's technical too, the the job. You have to kind of know about all of those aspects and, you know. What about, there's a whole area that that I've been doing recently that is really fascinating to me, which um, is color correcting and this whole digital intermediate phase. Yeah. Um, Let me get to that in a second. I'll walk you through real quick the rest of the the post process. You do the previews, you do more cuts. All the while, when that's happening, the composer's been hired. He starts what they call spotting the movie Mm -hmm. to figure out where the score is going to go and working with the director on that. Um, The sound effects editors are continuing to cut sound effects. You're shooting your Foley during that process as well. You're bringing in all your actors that have to do looping to replace dialogue that's bad or to add new dialogue. You do more of those loop group days. You bring in, you know, if you're lucky, you get a couple of other, you know, maybe two other days with another 15 actors or something to do that. Um, And then probably by about week 17 or 18, you're starting what you call your dubbing process where you... The picture's almost ready, almost locked completely. You've previewed it a few times. The studio loves it. The producers are happy, whatever. You're also doing your main titles. You know, you have to start. One of my jobs is um, going through the main titles with the legal department and making sure everything's there and going through the end credits. When I start a movie, I usually ask for the production coordinator on a film to give me their first draft of the end credits. It doesn't include any of the post-production credits or music credits at that point, but they give me their first pass of it. The studio or the producers also get it. And during the post-production process, we start to sort of fill in the blanks and start getting the end crawl together, which you shoot usually, you know, maybe three or four weeks before you're finished the movie so that you actually have the end crawl. If it's a real designy main title, maybe 12 weeks into post, you're already starting to hire your main title design company. They come in, have meetings with the director. They watch the beginning of the film. They dialogue about what he's looking for, and they come back to the table with, well, here's three ideas for you. What do you like, you know? So that's kind of all happening in the background. The composer, the titles, the visual effects are being completed, if there are any in the film, um, the dialogue replacement. When all that starts to sort of gel and get together, you start doing um, what you call the pre-dubs on a soundstage. And that's where they're taking all of the multiple sound effects tracks, all of the Foley tracks, all of the ADR tracks that you've got, and you start whittling them down. Instead of working with you know, 100 tracks on the board where a mixer has to sit there and nuance every little detail he takes that hundred sound effects tracks and he dials it down to maybe eight Mm -hmm. he condenses the things he puts the gun fires together he puts the car chase screeches on the wheels together so then we get to what they call the final dub he's got less controls to deal with it's a little bit more manageable it's kind of like condensing the mass amount of stuff and bringing it down to um, less tracks if you will to work on that process usually takes about three weeks because you what the, you pre-dub dialogue, and what that means is you clean up all of the, you know, when people are talking, they sometimes have those little clicks and stuff in their mouth. Or if, you know, like Justin's doing, he's got the microphone on me right now. If he switches the microphone over to you for the next setup, the, the, the background, the ambient sound well, might be it. different. Well, you, well, she keeps yeah, talking. I mean, the ambient sound in the room might be different. So what a good sound dialogue editor does is they make this seamless so that it always sounds like we were both mic'd at the same time at the same place. We might shoot your side of the shot an hour later after lunch or something. There may be something different about the background sound. So a dialogue editor has to clean all that up and take all the pauses out that are naturally occurring and make it completely smooth. So they pre-dub the dialogue to do that. They add in the ADR. The ADR is shot on a completely soundproof soundstage. What does ADR stand for It's again? automated dialogue replacement. It's also, you can, you can use the word looping to mean the same thing. 
but ADR, when you listen to an ADR track, it's completely clean because they were standing on a soundstage in a silent proof, you know, room. And if you try to put an ADR line from, say, this discussion we're having, cut into the original set production dialogue where there was the ambient room noise and maybe there was a car way in the distance that's still married to your track, you have to make that ADR line sound like it was shot the day on the set. So they have to pre-dub it. They have to give it a little bit of EQ to make it sound like it doesn't pop off the screen. We've all heard the bad ADR lines when you're watching a film. You're like, oh, that was looped. Right away it jumps. (laughs) It's like it's more present. Like everything else is back here and you hear a line that wasn't completely mixed properly because it was an ADR and it feels more present. It feels more in your face. It's standing in front of, if you will, the image in a way. And that's kind of like, oh, you could tell it's ADR. So they have to take... That's why they shoot room tone. Um, They record room tone on the set. So they can use that. It's it's called a BG or a background. They lay down all these different backgrounds for each scene. Each time we cut from this living room to that kitchen or whatever, each of these rooms has their own inherent background noise. So they do... A good sound mixer will go and record that stuff for the sound supervisor to use later in post-production. And they're often in dialogue. We were on Mission Impossible 3, for instance. Um, our sound supervisor, Mark Steckinger, was in touch with the crew in Rome when we were shooting all the Vatican scenes. And he asked the sound mixer, could you guys do some dry walkthroughs of the sets that we're using there and just record the room for me so that I can use it later when I have to add back all these things. So it's important on a movie like that, of that size, when you're in all these different locations, you can never replicate that from pulling a sound effect from a sound library. You've got to get the real stuff. So you contact the production early in the game, and you know Mark's great, he's done a lot of great work, and he knew enough about it to go, I'm going to get this stuff early. You know, Even though I'm not officially on the show yet, he knew what the script was like, he knew the locations they were shooting in, so he was always completely in touch with the production personnel on getting the stuff he needed he would even go out sometimes like there was a Lamborghini scene in the film and they would go out and they would record yeah the orange one (laughs) they would go out and they would record the Lamborghini doing different drive-bys like really close up with a microphone you know or I worked on a film once where the sound supervisor this was really cool they got a an empty sound stage at Warner Brothers and there was arrows being shot in the film, bow and arrows. And so they set up all these microphones about five feet apart to the end where there was the target. And because in the film, they're shooting arrows, you know, out in the field during the battle scene or something. I think it was timeline actually. And so what the sound supervisor did is he, is he shot that on a completely silent sound stage, and all the microphones picked up the of the arrow going by and you add it in later. And even though you've got hundreds of people battling, it's all those little subtleties that make something that make you feel like it's actually occurring. Yeah, you should have the sound effects track of any film, and it's it's you know it's not yeah. pretty. It's yeah, it's completely it's not life, you know, and that's what you're trying to to, to get to. So the pre dubs, that's what you're doing. You're taking all that massive stuff and you're whittling it down to a manageable amount of tracks, and then that takes, like I said, about three weeks or so, and then after that is when the whole crew, meaning the editor, myself the directors, the producers sometimes, we all move on to the dub stage where the pre-dubs have just happened and we live there for the next two or three weeks. And you go reel by reel. Sometimes it takes two or three or four days to do a reel depending on how complex it is. If it's a dialogue-only reel, it's pretty fast because you're just adding in the ADR and sweetening the dialogue. But if it's a big you know, car crash followed by a helicopter tra- you know, chase or whatever, that reel may take you longer because you're taking now all those sound effects, all the foley, all the extra stuff, and you're just completely dialing it in you're making all the sound levels right you're taking the music that the composer has delivered 
and you're putting in the big score, you know, action scene or whatever. So that happens on the dub stage at the very end. That's kind of the last thing that we do. Is that called the sound mix? It's called the sound mix. It's called the final dub. It's, you know, there's a couple of different names for it. Um, the, what does that look like where you, where you do that? Is that a big theater? Yeah, it's a huge room that a lo- most of the major studios have their own dubbing stages, and they number in, you know, anywhere from um, two or three big rooms, which are huge theater-sized rooms with the screen pretty far away, and there's a huge mixing console that two or three mixers sit at, and then there's a space behind where the producers and everybody else hangs out. And it emulates, what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to emulate a movie theater, basically. And there's also smaller dubbing stages that are used for television, they're used for lower budget films, and you can get a pretty good mix now in a smaller room because the equipment's gotten better, the speakers have gotten better. So depending on your budget and stuff, the ones I've done primarily are on the big dubbing stages in town. And you have your um, sound effects editors are set up there with Pro Tools. They work on the Pro Tool system, as do the music editors. So the music editors there with all the composers' original score. They're also there with all the songs that have been selected for the film. There's a dialogue editor on hand in case the director's watching something. He's like, didn't we have a better reading on that line, blah, blah, blah. And they quickly pull it up in their Pro Tools. They drop it in. They mix it in to make sure the level's right, and we move to the next thing. And that process, it's like a back and forth thing. You, you, you lay the reel down, the director watches it, you take notes. You're like, well, you know, that gunfire was too loud. I didn't ha- hear Joel's dialogue line there. It's really critical we hear that line. Or you can bury that line. It's not important. I want to hear more of the, you know, the car crash or whatever. So that whole process is what that, what's going on at that time is, is the final dub, is mixing all that stuff in. Sometimes I've found... Um... And this, again, is I only get like a couple of hours to do my mix, you know, because it's always like trying to grab it for free mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it's so expensive, you yep. know, and these guys are doing you a favor like I've been on the end of big movies. Right, right. Um, is that you're in there and it's got this great sound system and everything. It's very hard to, to figure it out. And then you walk away and you come back and you hear things you didn't hear at all. And you kind of don't get to do it again. I mean, that's what I found. It's very, you're in this little tunnel where the speakers are so great and the room is so great and you hear everything great and then you leave and put it in your home thing and it doesn't sound anything yeah, like that Yeah, it's a completely different mix. In fact, one of the things they do on the big movies, the big releases where the, you'll notice over the years the DVDs have come out a lot closer in date to the films coming out and I think mainly that reason is for it's been piracy issues because everybody has I mean the movie hits the street the day after or the day of sometimes that it's in the theaters you can buy it in you know far east country or something like that and yeah, we have we downtown at the garment district I know <laughs> in the fabric district you, I've seen a lot of the movies that I've just you know gotten off of sitting there waiting to be bought for five dollars which is really sad but um the um point I lost what were we talking about well, after, so you were saying um that the dvd window the window oh, yeah. is getting smaller the mix on a dvd is completely different when they when they finish the final mix for the movie the kind you're, the, the mix you're going to hear in the theater the 5.1 mix oftentimes they will jump right into with the same guys if you're lucky the same guys that know the movie now inside and outside because they've been on it for six weeks on the dub stage every nuance of it they'll use those same guys to do the dvd mix which they know is going to be played back in somebody's 5.1 home theater environment. So instead of sitting on the dub stage and mixing it to the big speakers that are all the way around the big room, they actually bring in a bank of speakers right behind the mixing console to emulate what it's like in your house, in your living room. 
and they mix it to that. They do the same thing for the television mix, you know, which is oftentimes just played back on your TV for stereo. <laughs> you know, you want to put it in the environment that it's going to be in, or it's going to be the same experience you had, where you bring home the great mix and listen to it at home. And you're like, oh, this isn't this. Everything's crushed down. Or I don't hear the details. And so do you. So then, what I should do is I need to ask for two mixes. If you're lucky to get two mixes, absolutely. If you can. Yeah, if you can get it mixed for a home theater environment, that would be great. It depends on what you're marketing, what you're doing with the property, I suppose. It depends right. on what you what your intentions are. Sure. Theater, or if you're going to go straight to DVD, or. But let's be honest. I mean, the life, the the main life of any entertainment product is not in the theater. Right. Yeah, it lives forever on on the DVD, or so we hope. So at this point, then what happens? Is that are we well the, well the final mix is it comes to an end there's like i said there's that happens for anywhere from you know 15 to 20 days usually it depends it could be around the clock seven days a week or it could be this is every the director knows what he wants he comes in he makes a decision we move on it's a short little film whatever as that's wrapping itself up i'm in the meantime getting you know the main title shot and we're looking up on the screen and we're making you know making sure that they look good on film all of the film opticals are being delivered the final ones which is all of the fades and the dissolves and things of that nature. The visual effects are being dropped into the cut. We also started, I'll back up a second, we also started cutting the negative back when, usually when you start pre-dubbing the film, which is about five weeks out from finishing. By then you hopefully have reels of the movie that are locked and are not going to change. Sometimes they change up until the minute you're done with a dub, and I've worked on a lot of those. But what you do is you start sending in what they call the cut list to the negative cutter, so they can start pulling all the original camera negative off the shelves and start splicing together. The original negative is going to be beautiful and pretty and color corrected at the lab. Um, they can do changes more easily now than they can before. It used to be once the negative is cut, you can't go back. But now you can. You can open a splice up and you know you lose a little bit there, but um, it's definitely done more frequently. There's also the digital intermediate that you were talking about, which is digitally color correcting, which a lot of films are doing now. You know, Pirates did it. We did it on Mission. You know, Miami Vice did it. That certainly had this really gritty look that you couldn't get on film. Um, so Michael Mann is a huge fan of that. But um, that is a whole other process. Instead of photochemically coloring the film and color correcting it so that all of the scenes sort of coherently go together in terms of the look and it's not too red or too green or whatever, you can go in digitally and what they call like pull a mat or something. You can take, you know, I can freeze frame on your image right now and I could pretty much change your black shirt and make it red if I wanted to and it's done like that you know whereas you couldn't do that in the old days when you're photochemically I'd have to overall make this scene like if I wanted it warmer you know if we're supposed to be having a more intimate conversation or something that it was shot and it was just too blue or too cold I could make the whole scene warmer but I can't zero in on you and change something about you specifically or if there are you know, um, little blemishes or a little, you know, something that's scratched on the negative. You used to have to go and scan the negative, digitally fix it, output the negative, and then cut the new piece and that had the digital fix on the scratch. Now you can just go in if your whole movie scanned because you're digitally color correcting it. You can just on the fly, oh, there's a scratch on that frame, boom, it's fixed. Go on, move on. Or if you want to blow it up at the last minute, you didn't do that optically because you didn't think that shot needed to blow up. But once you saw it on the big screen, you could actually see the mic hanging down. Or there's something in the frame that's not supposed to be there, just blow it up. See, I'm it's really surprised quick. to hear that opticals are still being done. Yeah, you still do opticals, but they do them more digitally now. It's digital opticals, but you can still do a film where you still cut negative traditional style, 
which a lot of the studios still require you at the end of the day to still cut your negative and archive it. Some companies, we just worked with Company 3 in Santa Monica on Mission Impossible. They do all the big films. But some companies scan takes. So they'll see what the cut of real one is, for instance, and they'll know that you're using, you know, the part of Tom Cruise saying his dialogue line from a certain point, a certain footage to a certain footage. They'll scan that original piece of negative and they'll add what they call handles. They'll put on like eight frame handles on either side in case the director comes back three weeks later after it's cut and he says, you know what, we really need to hold on Tom's face a little bit longer there, whatever. We don't have to take the negative out again and scan the whole thing again and add those frames at the end. They've covered themselves in the handles there. So we've not given them a cut film negative to scan the whole thing and you're locked in to every frame that's in there and you have to scan whole pieces again if you want to extend a shot. A lot of times they will scan what we did on mission is you scan the whole take with handles but that leaves us without a cut negative at the end of the show and a lot of studios require you to actually go back and cut the negative in its final form for archiving other studios will let you just box up the takes that you scanned which has the handles has the slates on them still but it means you could go back in and change the cut if you wanted to because you've not cut the original camera negative so there's two schools of thoughts on it. There's two. There's no right or wrong way to do it at this point. People just handle it differently depending on who you're working with and stuff. Wow. So it adds time. The digital, the digital color timing process, the first time I did it was on mission, in fact. And we had it all dialed in from the beginning because they were great about giving us what the schedule had to be. They're like, we've got to get your reels by this point because we need to go, we need to do steps two, three, and four before we can give you a spit out, you know, color corrected version of the reel. So in terms of a s- scheduling, you have to, you have to factor in more time when you do digital color correcting and where Who you co- did the digital color correcting permission. It was uh Stefan over at company three. He does all of the big pictures. They're great over there, but um, they started in commercials and then everybody started doing color, digital color correcting on their feature films. So they've kind of segued and that's their you know, their main bread and butter over there, although they still do a lot of the big commercial work. But you have to add more time to your post schedule or you take it away from the amount of time the director has to cut because you have to lock sooner. A negative cutter, you can throw two or three negative cutters in a room on a weekend and cut reel three if the director changed it at the last minute. You can recut reel three. When you are doing it digitally, you have to add more time because they have to pull the negative, they have to clean the negative, they have to scan the negative, they have to digitally clean the negative. Once you scan a piece of negative, you could see little hits and dirts and scratches and whatnot. You have to spend the time to digitally fix those. Then you have to go color correct it. Then you have to assemble it into the reel. And then you have to write it to a drive. And then you have to take it to another facility that films it out. So then when they film it out, I learned this on mission, it has to cure on a shelf for eight hours before they can send it to the lab. You know, when it's a full reel of film, it actually chemically has to sit there without being put into the bath to develop for a certain amount of time. So you start doing the math and you realize, oh, we got to we got to move. We got to get this going faster. Cuz it wow. it's a whole different animal. To it's cool because you can get a lot of different looks with it. But you have to think outside of the box that you're used to being in, you know, when you know you can get something turned around at the negative cutter overnight, you need to go, okay, well this doesn't take just 24 hours. It takes 48 or 72. And when you're already behind or when you're already running late, those hours are precious and it's like, okay, we okay. And that's part of my job as well as keeping up with sort of the ever-changing 
uh, ebb and flow of the schedule. In production, it's more structured because you're, you know, you've got a payroll of 500, 1,000 people, 200 people, whatever it is, and you've got to get in, get the shots. You got to wrap by a certain amount. You got to beg for an hour of overtime because you're not paying 20 people, you're paying 200 people. Post production is there's a lot more fluidity to it, it's a lot more organic. So you just have to be on top of keeping, you know, making sure that the guy's got, he's, he's hit the mark, he's got, you know, he's got the cut ready because we've got a studio screening in a week, but we haven't dubbed it yet, and the composer hasn't written the music yet, so you've constantly got to be changing the schedule to match whatever happened that day or whatever didn't happen that day. So it's different from production in that regard. It's, it's a lot, I put out a lot more schedules, you know, on a daily basis than they may from the beginning because it's, they're dealing with locations that they're locked into or actors that they may lose going on to another project. We can sort of be wishy-washy a bit with um, the way post is run, which is, you know, great and not so great, depending on what the circumstance is. How do you feel about um, high-definition video? And have you done any films in, in that format? No, we haven't. I think we shot, on Mission Impossible, we, we shot some of the plates in Shanghai, high def. The plates, which are the backgrounds to the visual effects, um, where like Tom is standing on top of the big tower and we do this beautiful wraparound shot of him. The background plate, the skyline of Shanghai, I think was an HD plate. So they shot a lot of great HD stuff, which incorporated seamlessly into the film foreground, which was the actors. Um, so I haven't done a film that's incorporated again, like a lot of the Michael Mann stuff, he shoots HD, he shoots film, he shoots everything and he mixes it all together. And it's sometimes, you know, beautiful, like in collateral, but I haven't done that, but I'm, I'm definitely exploring it more with, you know, the project flaming iguanas that I'm going to be doing with Erica. Um, because I think that might be a way to go for us. Cause I still would have the control of, I think it would be cheaper than shooting 35 millimeter and developing it and storing all that film and cutting all that film. But also in terms of the look that we want for the film, we would have that ability to really manipulate it more so, I think, than we would if it was originally shot on film and then scanned digital, you know, to make it a digital product that we could work from. If, if you were to um, give us a ballpark on what you think the difference in percentage of budget for going post on 35 and going post on HD, what do you think that distinction would be? I wish I could answer that. That's It's hard to say because it's... Um, I've not done the math myself because I haven't done a, pro- a, a project that's all HD. You have, you know, less film editors. There was schools of thought when this first started happening, if you're going to if you're gonna do HD dailies as opposed to printing your dailies. You know, they would argue that there's a lot less editorial staff that you're paying because you don't have assistant editors cutting the film together. As the editors cut on an Avid, they usually then give it over to the assistant editors. They cut that same cut on film to take it to the preview house or whatever. But you pick up other costs along the way, like your online costs and, and different things like that. So it's, I couldn't give you a distinct answer because I haven't had to budget an all HD post. Um, I think it really depends. It, it also depends on what kind of camera rates you can get, you know, both on film and on HD. Your stock. developing prices, your stock prices, it's a whole array of things, you know. Um, certainly I think it would be less staff HD because you're not conforming dailies and all that, but it, the costs are put back in the equation at a later date. I think. 
Well, we're running out of time, oh, and um, we better have one more question. Okay, so this time we ha we have our, we're to our film bite section, and that's usually where someone will give a film bite, and it'll be like an advice, a uh, piece of advice to people out there on, uh, that are making maybe their first film or something like that. This time we're going to for film bites, we're going to ask Debbie questions <laughs> because uh, she's such a font of information, and we I really feel like I don't want to end this thing, but you know we can't be too long. So, Kamala's going to ask Debbie a question. I, I just want to know for for uh, myself and any other filmmakers out there that are trying to budget their first small feature film, mm -hmm. how much money should be? How much of my budget? Should I allocate to post-production if it's not a completely, you know, if it's a, a pretty normal type of film? Would it be 50%, less than 50%? Oh, totally less. It's, it could be as, as little as 10% of the budget. It could be. It, depend, it depends on, I mean, again, my experience has been from really large-budget films, and sometimes the budget, the post-budget is, you know, 10% of, it's a $60 million film. Sometimes I'm working with $6 million in just the post budget alone or $7 million or so. But some of that depends on how short is your post schedule. Therefore, do you need to hire two editors? Does the director, you want to cut it in Los Angeles or does he want to cut it at his house in, you know, Cape Cod or something? And therefore, I need to add in travel time. Like there's all these little variables. Are there visual effects shots in the budget? Is it a heavy song movie where you need to budget licenses versus a composer scoring completely original material so it's sort of it's definitely not 50 percent rest assured in that that most of you know a lot of your money goes to paying your actors and your sets and your big crew during production and it's a smaller portion that goes to go goes to post but I, I couldn't put an exact percentage on it but I haven't found in my experience that it's it's much more than say the 10 to 15 percent range but I there's a lot of that variables might be a little dis different for like a movie that's like half a million dollars yeah i've found um that it's about 25 to 30 percent okay so far okay um and i don't know um i don't know if that's right or not but that's what i've been able to yeah I mean, the, other, the other thing i would recommend for a young filmmaker who's doing their first film if it is a low budget film is in terms of sound guys and stuff is you can go to even some of the big companies in town that do all the blockbusters because they want to get in bed with maybe the next great thing as everybody does in this town right but you can go to them and say look i've got this little movie I don't have a lot of money. What kind of package deal can you give? And the and the sound companies, a lot of them now own their own dubbing stages. They own their own ADR stage. And they're interested, I mean, it's a business. They're interested in renting out facilities in addition to giving you their personnel. So if you go to them and say, I'm looking for a package deal. For $50,000, can I get a sound crew, dub stage, some ADR time, and some Foley time? And oftentimes you'll get a yes, which is a great boost because you get... One-stop shopping, and that's what's great about a lot of the sound companies out there, is they'll do it. They'll help the little guy out because they were once, you know, a young, fledgling sound company trying to make it to the big time. Or, again, they appreciate the project. There's something original about it. It's exciting to work on a little movie. I mean, you can think of a lot of our great directors today that started out doing that little tiny movie that finally made it for them, and they were loyal, and they took that sound guy all the way through with them. Or there's the composer. You know, you go out and you find a guy that's just starting to get his teeth wet composing on television shows or on film or something like that really small films you go look I don't have a lot of money but this is what I'm looking for and these people also want to get recognition for their work so if they like the property 
They'll go, yeah, you know what? I'll do a score for you because this is going to be good for me too. It's going to be good and I'll give you a break on my rates. And you can, you know, I would say don't be afraid to go to even some of the big vendors in town and say, I'm a little guy in a big ocean. I've got a property I really believe in. Can you help? And you find out that, yeah, they want to, they want to do that because it's about sort of this give and take because you'll come back to them as a client. And I've done that a lot before. You know, I've gone to smaller shops and I've come back to them when I've had a you know project that's bigger and that's got more money where I can actually pay them a little bit more. And I think they really appreciate that because it's all about relationships, ultimately, as you guys know. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a good film bite to end on. Um, I want to thank you, Debbie, for having us here in your house. And uh, also, I want to thank Erica for... Um, Erica Lopez, Erica who, Lopez who has been here the entire time. beautiful movie called Flaming Iguanas, which is based on her book, Flaming Iguanas, um, that Debbie's going to be producing. Um, and that Erica's going to be, well, it has written and designed and maybe co-directing. We don't know exactly everything that she's going to be doing on it. She's starring in it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, check out her books because they're really something else. Hoochie Mama and the Other White Meat, They Call Me Mad Dog, and Flaming Iguanas. And thank you both so much. Thank you, guys. It was great fun. Thank you very right. much. Thank you again, Justin Shoemaker, for... Uh, holding the microphone and uh, being here as usual. And Justin Shoemaker, by the way, is my post-production supervisor. <laughs> okay, email us at joel at fatfreefilm.com if you have any questions for us or any of our guests. See you next week.